people talk often about um, how Americans aren't really in poverty, right? It's like, well, compare them to, you know, people in Liberia, they're not in poverty. But I think the threat Americans face, if they are impoverished, is so intense, right? It's not like, to go back to the community thing, right? You don't have a lot of people to lean on. You're kind of on your own. We don't have really a social safety net at all. Um, so you can fall so far, so, and you're usually in debt, like you only have like a month, you know, to not have that play out. And you're just trying to make it ends meet all the time. So much of our society is in that mind frame. And I don't think we properly attribute um, that reality to some of the outcomes that we're seeing. If you falter in America today, it's very isolating. There's a lot of shame associated with totally. it. And you don't have that lattice or web of connections that are going to protect you or put you back on your feet. One of the facts that I found striking is that unemployed men volunteer less and attend religious services less than employed men. Right. Which you think for a second, it's like, wait a minute, you have more time. So you could right. clearly do those things. Right. <laughs> but when you lose that, that right. sense of connection and purpose, you actually withdraw and check out, totally. which we're seeing over and over again in American life. It's 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 heartbreaking, really. When I, I think about so many people whose um, potential is is being lost as a result. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast someone I've been after to have this conversation with for months now, but he's a hard man to get a hold of. Xander Schultz. Xander, <laughs> welcome. What's going on, brother? How you doing? Thanks so for having. those of you who are watching the video, you're like, where the hell are they right now? So I'm going to ask you, <laughs> yeah. Xander, where are we yeah, right yeah. now? Secret location. To, to be fair, it's secret location somewhere in Gotham. Uh, Mike Novogratz's family office. I'm the entrepreneur and resident at Mike's family office working on creating things that drive system change. That sounds very confusing, man. Yeah, boil that shit down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's important to boil it down, but I also think it's like important to announce like your mission because sometimes like the what can be confusing to people, you know, the tactical and strategy level. And then sometimes, you know, if you don't announce your, you know, why, why, why are you doing all this? Um, personally, I have a mission of eradicating desperation. This is why I became such a champion of you and basic income and the momentum you had. Uh, in the presidential election and continue to have in all your work. And um, and then, like, tactically, what does that look like? Right now, the majority of the stuff we're launching is focused on moving as much political power as possible to marginalized communities, marginalized populations, uh, so they can defend themselves, essentially, right? They can use our political system to build that floor that we don't have in this country. And so that's been the last uh, couple years and kind of the more pragmatic stuff that we're doing. You and I met on the presidential and you were one of the earliest champions of UBI. You were like, yeah, yeah man, common sense. Let's yeah, do yeah. this. Um, so unpack how the heck you got to a destination before everyone else. And one of the things I like to do on the podcast is talk about people's paths or arcs or origin stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have an origin story that is essentially impossible slash unthinkable. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> really? I mean... Uh, and and these kinds of experiences tend to bring out either the best or worst in people. Uh, and in your case, it's very much the former. You're you're one of the most positive K 
can do spirited people that I know. But I remember when I, I first put two and two together as to the fact that I'd seen a fictionalized version of you on my TV screen. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'd met you. And then I, again, it took me a little while and I was like, Oh shit. Like, like Xander's from the famous Schultz family, which were champion wrestlers and Olympians. Yeah. 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 Uh, So, how, how did you grow up and, and where was that? Because you have a, an incredible story that most people, again, wouldn't imagine is even possible. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, my life's gone in like really interesting chapters. I think all of it leads to this idea of, you know, supporting basic income and these type of things. Um, started out, you know, the son of Dave Schultz, who's one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. And basically grew up on a commune uh, that, that was this rich guy's property called Foxcatcher. And so if you haven't seen this movie, it's starring Mark Ruffalo and Channing Tatum. Um, but that movie is about where Xander grew up. Right, right, essentially. Although that movie, the hard part of that, that movie, I thought they did a tremendous job. Those guys did a tremendous job. Mark plays my dad and Channing plays my uncle in that movie. Um, but the hard part was it had this like dark undertone, you know, and it was actually like the happiest place on earth. Growing up, it was, it was essentially a commune of people chasing their dreams, right? It was like an Olympic training center where all these guys were trying to make the Olympic team and swimming and wrestling. And um, and then they all had kids who became my like sisters and brothers and cousins. I'm very confusing when I talk to people about like who other people are in my life because I grew up with so many wonderful people. Um, yeah. And, and because my dad was an Olympic champion wrestler, we also had... Um, all the other Olympic teams come stay at our house. My dad was known as this great strategist. And so like other country's teams would come live with us for like a month at a time, you know, do camps for like a couple weeks. And the best wrestlers in the world are often coming from our political foes. So the Soviet Union at the time is, and still Russia still is the best wrestlers in the world. Um, Oftentimes in the top two or three is Iran. Oftentimes in the top three or four is Cuba. Um, North Korea, believe it or not, has some really good lightweight wrestlers. Uh, Japan has really good wrestlers. Um, and so I grew up on kind of this, like, it's a small world Disney ride, which, you know, it, I didn't even have any preconceived notions about how people are different. So there's nothing to like deconstruct. I just started from this default of really loving people and seeing their differences as like interesting, but I didn't even like, they're so minor compared to all of our commonalities, right? It's like the Japanese guys would come do Tai Chi and I do Tai Chi with them, right? And the Russian guys would come over and play some chess and teach me chess. And it was like small differences, but like, you know, same thing for everyone. People love community, people love chasing their dreams, et cetera. Uh, and so that was like this really beautiful foundation that, that I got to kickstart my life. And on top of it, the people around me were doing big things. So like, I was just talking to someone last night about, how lucky I am that like I grew up with so many people around me being Olympic champions. And like, of course you do big things when you get older and you see so many people have this imposter syndrome as they step up into these different levels of success. I imagine like running a popular presidential campaign kind of feels like that times where you're like, Whoa, this is really happening. You know, I'm one of like seven people in the country that people really are putting a lot of energy behind. Um, and like, because of the success I was surrounded by, I always believed that, you know, it was like destiny to impact the world and do big things in the world. Well, you have an elevated belief in human potential and human capacity. Totally. The reason why the movie presented it as so dark is because there was this incredible tragedy yeah. where the benefactor behind Foxcatcher right. uh, was insane and uh, killed your father. Yeah. yeah. John DuPont used the heir of the DuPont, you know, you know, the DuPont chemical company, DuPont Fortune, um, basically lost his mind. You know, he was already, I would say, like borderline very mentally sick the whole time we were there. But um, 
it's kind of like the slide you saw Michael Jackson on where he was like too rich and powerful for anyone to really like kind of stop him. If he did, he fired you, you know, that type of thing. Um, and so I do that. The people around me, anytime someone anyone tries, tries, to, back. tries to slow down my Nick descent, yeah, yeah. I'm like, look, I'm descending here. You're fired. Yeah, 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 no, yeah. I, mean, I shouldn't joke about this cause it's, it's a thing. So <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's totally fine. I, um, yeah. And so, so basically it was a mix of drug use, mental illness, financial independence in like such a wild way that like the guy could get away with whatever, you know, he was paying off the police department to do stuff, et cetera. And it culminated in him killing my father when I was nine in 1996. Um, and it became a really big news story at the time. He went and holed up at his mansion, which was like a, a replica of Monticello. You had like, you know, SWAT teams outside this replica of Monticello for three days. So it became this like massive, massive event. Um, and then it also like, you know, I, I'm involved a little bit in refugee work and like this is a very like light version of this, but also because he owned the property that we were all living on, it obliterated that community I was telling you about in like a day. You know, we were all off it. And it was an Olympic year too, so the other wrestlers couldn't hang around. You know, they needed to get back to work pretty soon too. So like some went to the Olympic Training Center, you know, we moved to California right after that. And so there was like this obliteration of community, which was um, in, in the midst of this tragedy, which kind of like compounded it in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's that was like the closure of that chapter. What what did you understand as a nine year old uh, when this was, was happening? Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to know, like what you've kind of like deduced like since then, you know, versus like what you're feeling at the time. I remember. um I feel very grateful that I knew John in that like he was a family friend. And so I couldn't, I think there's a lot of times people come out of these tragedies and the mythology of like a bad guy is able to run rampant and they want to stop the bad guys and everything. But I knew John, I saw his descent firsthand. Like, so I'm getting sicker. So I'm getting more confused. And in a lot of ways, I think my dad got, was killed because he like, he let John know he saw him too. He's like, Hey, we can go to rehab. You know, we'll, we'll call it my training camp. And we'll go to rehab. I think that was a lot of where like this, this, distrust and how he kind of built my dad up as this monster eventually, you know, his head is, is he was seen by him. Um, but I'm really grateful for knowing him because he was at my birthday parties and stuff. So he never was a monster to me. He was a sick guy that sometimes did sick things. Like he drove his Lincoln town car into the pond, you know, he burned down his greenhouse. This was all in the last, like, it wasn't always like this. It was like this descent the last couple of months. Um, but so it, it seemed like something that happened because a sickness wasn't addressed because there was a lack of love when he was young and you saw it, like how the DuPont family was with each other. Um, and so I, I think I was lucky to be able to correctly attribute the factors to like this outcome uh, instead of just believing that, you know, there's these evil people out there that just want to hurt people. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house 
and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it, Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So your family immediately moved out west. Yeah. Uh, did you have siblings? Sister. A sister. Yeah. Is she older, younger? I'm younger. Three years younger. Wow. Yeah. So you're nine and six. Yeah. You move out west with your mom uh, and... What did she do for a living? Like, what was that? Uh, well, so we had on the heels of this, we have this criminal trial, which is, you know, this, this massive media event. And then we had a civil trial. And so uh, the civil trial, we had the settlement and which is like getting us closer to the answer around basic income and everything too. And so the settlement was enough where my mom was okay and able to take care of us. Um, and then we had something waiting for us when we turned 18 as well. Um, so it was nice in that, like, this is what's so wild. Like I see how damaging that that um, event was for me, right? I ended up dropping out of high school. Went to like five high schools. Dropped out. Really struggled. Um, didn't think I was struggling at the time, but clearly. And we were so well supported. Like there's so many people in our country that go through things like this um, that have none of that, right? We had financial support. We had literally, my dad was one of the most popular wrestlers in the world. And not just like because he was a great athlete. People really loved him. So there were so many people, like the community that surrounded us and just made sure I was good no matter how much of an asshole I was as like a teenager. They just kept coming back and supporting me. Like that community level, especially in the United States, we're so fucking lonely here. Especially in the United States, we don't have it. And then the financial wherewithal that we had that my mom could, you know, support me through those processes, hire counseling, whatever. And like also I could just continually fail for you know up until i'm like 21 22 and be okay right and pick myself back up um just folks don't have that and we had that and we're like it's so incredibly lucky did you feel immense pressure as the son of a world oh, class yeah. athlete yeah 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 definitely because wrestlers are the toughest dudes there are yeah uh, I wrestled very poorly for one year. <laughs> I did as well. That was my experience as well. <laughs> uh, so I have a lot of respect and admiration uh, for the people who excel at it because it requires yeah. such discipline. Wild amounts of discipline. And, and fortitude and toughness. Um, so I can only imagine what it would it be like having a father who's literally a world champion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to, it's funny, I went to... Um, I played basketball growing up, which is like, I think partially reaction to what you're talking about. I was like the, the ceiling for like a five foot 10 white guy is so low in basketball. People are just proud of me if I like make my high school team or whatever. But I went to join camp when I was 16 and I roomed upstairs, downstairs was Jeffrey Jordan, Michael's son. And he was playing basketball. I'm like, I can't believe you're playing basketball, man. Like, like you your dad is about, yeah, we'll trade, man. Like you let me practice with your dad. I'll get you a bunch of coaches. Like this is insane. He had such a great attitude about it. I, I definitely didn't. I don't know if it was because my dad went from like a really good wrestler to like a martyr and then also someone who wasn't present for me. So it's not like I had 
like the coaching of an Olympic champion. I just had like the branding, right? And so, uh, so I that one year I got smashed because kids were very excited, <laughs> excited to smash me. And you know that's that's about enough of that. You know you don't need a, a lot of those experiences before you're like maybe I'll switch this up. Doesn't hurt so bad when I miss layups. <laughs> I'll be all right. Uh, but yeah, I, I really felt that, and I think even like that still translates to today. Like when I said I'm really appreciative of like this. It's like license to want to achieve big things. There's also like the pressure to achieve big things, which I still think is like I've, you know, deconstructed some of this and, and got to a healthier place with this. I'm not like, you know, only motivated by, you know, uh, the, the wrong type of energy. But I, I, I think that continues to be a thing. You know, my dad was known for bringing people together and being a bridge builder. He was an American that would hang out in the Soviet Union or in Iran, you know, in Tehran for, for long periods of time. And spoke their languages and like built bridges, you know, he's called the wrestlers wrestling's greatest ambassador. And so I think that's kind of the thread of that pressure that I've chosen to follow. Um, but it was certainly there. It's certainly still there to an extent for sure. Well, you do bring people together like very few other people I know. Uh, <laughs> and you're obviously right that most Americans don't have the ability to stumble and fall and stumble and fall totally. and, and, and get back up. Um, you have one of the most powerful mindsets of both empathy and abundance I've ever encountered, really. And you recently texted me something around, look, this is the first time in human history where we actually have ample resources to provide for everyone. Yeah, yeah. But this window will not remain open forever. Totally. Because and the two dangers you posed were climate change and the rise of authoritarianism, yep. both of which you're right about, obviously. I mean, we, we can see uh, both of them. Uh, and your message to me, and what's funny is I, I'm like the presidential candidate of universal basic income. Uh, your message to me actually was like a reminder to me, which was, um, you know, uh, which is, again, one reason why, um, uh, why I love spending time with you so much. So when you are 21, you start hitting your stride and you have this pressure to achieve big things. Uh, how did you end up um, channeling your energies? Yeah. Well, just real quickly to touch on what you just said. Like, I think that's like what's hard when you get dragged into like the tactics and the strategy stuff is like you kind of I start putting like my 10 year goal on top of my to do list. Just like remember. Yes. You know, you're like, oh, it's yeah, a very, that's very, the thing that's a very good lesson. And like, OK, everything filters down from that, like the 10 year, the one year and then like get into sure you're like Gantt chart and you're like tasks for the day and all that stuff. But it's hard. That's why I love you know chatting with you as well. Like You do the same thing for me. Right. It's like once you I've become more tactical as, as I've become an operator in some of these things. And it's hard to like keep in mind this like bigger thing that we're sprinting towards sometimes. Um, but right around 21, what was the question again? Sorry. Uh, just how did you end up channeling your energies when, and, and what, what's interesting is I think you and I might share this where there was a point where my, my parents said to me, look, if someone else can do it, you should be able to do it too. Like yeah. you, you have, you know, the capacities and what they were describing at the time was just getting good grades. But I got that bug early on and i saw other people starting companies so i said oh i should be able to start one too totally and my first company failed and so that hurt um, but then i worked with more experienced entrepreneurs and tried again and then i had some success and totally. then tried again and the rest of it so i can certainly relate to the entire stumbling and, and having the license to both fail and then get right. up and recover that's how you learn 
Yeah. Uh, so what was your development process like after you decided to try and start building things in your 20s? Totally. Well, like my, my experience, which was, um, it was even less about like the goals at the moment. I had uh, interned with, with my godfather, this guy, Greg Alinsky, that was also a really successful wrestler and then was successful on Wall Street. And he, he kind of was like, look, you're, you're being ridiculous. <laughs> like, just come under my wing for like three months. Help me with, you know, help me with my work and everything. And um, I learned about habits. Like I was hanging out with them and he's like, hey, every day we wake up at five, we, then we work out then we write down the three things we need to do today for it to be a successful day. And then we clear our inbox, you know, by like seven, we eat a healthy breakfast and we go into the office an hour early. You know, we, we start knocking out those three things. It's like 930 and we've already done everything we need to do to have a successful day. And I was like, so I did this for three months and like I was really doing it. I had no discipline before, you know, and I was like. No one teaches you this. No one teaches you like habits, like how to set goals and habits. And like, we just download people with information. I remember missing like, I had a 0, 0.0 GPA one semester in high school. I remember missing tests. I'm like, how, how does everyone even know there's a test? This day? Like no one was around, you know, single parent household. My uncle raised me uh, sometimes. He came in to help because my mom was gone a lot with the uh, trials and these things. Uh, and my uncle passed away as well, had AIDS and then overdosed and and so like, there was just like, I was kind of on my own in a lot of ways. Like, even though I had so much communal support on the day to day level and just like being able to see a successful guy do these things. Um, and I was like, whoa, this is, I don't know if I can be as successful as this guy, but I can have this morning. Like, I know I can have this morning after doing it. I can at least it. emulate the behavior. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I can emulate this behavior. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go back to school then. Like that's, that was the first thing. I'm just going to like try to apply this. And I went back to school and I got a 4.0 the first semester. And I was like, huh? interesting like that i will say that if you woke up at 5 a.m and banged shit out yeah uh you would probably do better than the average college student <laughs> totally, totally. like mind you too like i'm not trying to paint myself as a hero mind you i had financial stability at this point and like you know i was 21 i wasn't 18 and so and i just had this experience um and and so anyway so that happens i was like wow that was great i'm gonna i'm gonna go back to school and i'm gonna i'm gonna volunteer full-time and i'm gonna this semester, I volunteered at this place called Reading Partners. I was helping like underprivileged kids get up to speed, and I uh, got another 4 I was like, "Holy shit! This is like, this is like in." I felt like you know in Street Fighter when you're choosing a character and they've got like different attributes. I'm like, "This is like the screen. I can be whoever I want to be if this is all it takes." Is like investing in these habits and like just picking which ones you want to be good at, and um, and then so from there, I got involved in a startup called Kifi. Um, started as an intern. I'm like, I'll do whatever. But I was on the founding team over there and then became a project manager over there. That sold to Google. And like, you're starting to like, look at this resume of yours build up. Like I'm an honor roll student, been like founding team, at like a startup that sold to Google. And you're like, doesn't even feel, cause I was still so close to the failing version of myself time-wise. I hadn't evolved that much as a human, you know, other than applying this stuff. And, um, and so I think between, between learning the power of habits and, um, and then also the financial freedom to kind of take big swings. Like we always talk about entrepreneurs like taking risks. And I was like, this, this Most people don't have the uh, capacity to take those risks because if, if they fail, they're sunk. It's over. You know, and for me, it was the opposite of risky. What am I going to yeah. do? I'm going to be an entry sales level person or I'll like try to start some shit up and like it fails, but at least I ran a startup. It's like an infinitely better experience. You build a better network, et cetera. So it was the opposite of risky for me too. But I think those two things were like, started to be really influential in what I wanted for everyone. Cause I felt, and I had been 
less than normal, like failing, right? And I was like, man, I felt like almost the opposite of what you said with your parents. Like, if they can do it, you can do it. I was like, if I can do it, <laughs> and we give this formula to like humanity, I don't know what's going to come of it. You know, I, 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 we've never had that world. Um, and I think that's what really excites me about basic income. I think we're using 1% of humans, maybe less than 1% of humans to like drive us forward. And we think of society as like, we're still in this mode where it's like, everyone's got to work. Like that's the purpose of like, everyone's got to work. And I think I, I talked to my friend, Nick Fitz, who, um, runs a company called Momentum the other day. And he had this really beautiful metaphor. It's like, we need to think of society like a VC. It's like, we're going to cut, you know, 300 million checks in America. And hopefully, you know, it's a success if 10 of those folks become, I don't know how you feel about Elon Musk, but like Elon Musk-esque in terms of driving humanity forward in some capacity, right? Um, you could pick and choose a different person. If it, no, yeah. I, uh, I like Elon and uh, I completely understand what you'd think of as like the power law distribution is like, look, I don't need 200 million of these to work out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why are we so afraid of 200 million people smoking weed and chilling and like 50 that like make us sustainable and, you know, eliminate desperation and and all that. Now, that wouldn't be the preferred distribution. Of course, you like to think lots of people would be, you know, somewhere in the middle. And, and I guess like also I'd add to that. I came into money at a time where I was smoking weed, hooking up with girls, not doing much. And that financial freedom was the flip side of like the argument you always hear. You're like, everyone's going to hang out and smoke weed. And I was like, my life was so intense and depressing. I was like numbing myself, you know, to these like, you know, different traumas and stuff that we had been through. And like the fact that all of a sudden I felt like everything was feasible. All of a sudden I could take in so much information. Like the privilege of having wealth wasn't just like the money. The money's great. It was everything became realistic. I'm like, I'm going to learn about real estate because maybe I'll invest in a house soon, you know? And so it was all applicable. You could take it on. Well, one of the things I said on the campaign trail all the time was that it is impossible to train someone in financial literacy if they don't have money. Yeah. Because it's all bullshit and imaginary. Totally. You know, and if you actually do have money, and I had an experience that was not unlike this, where I studied economics in college and understood all the principles, yeah. but it still didn't matter until you actually had right. a couple bucks to rub together totally. and you're like, oh, okay, now I guess I'm going to have to figure out what I'm going to do with this. Totally. Uh, and so I think we should be teaching people financial literacy and then giving them all money. Uh, senior year in high school, I mean, I, I proposed obviously the freedom dividend of a thousand right. bucks a month starting at age 18. It would be, right. it would and I also agree with you in the activation where when you get this money, you're like, oh, it's real? Okay, I guess I got to figure shit out. Yeah, 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 got it. Like, I think one of the things that I, I, I thought was going to naturally occur uh, if the freedom dividend became a thing is people start living together and you're like, okay, well, there's now four of us with 48K. You can go back to school. You can, you know, you can work part time totally. and do people this. Like, cool resources. There'd be really cool stuff happening that like people couldn't, like, I think totally see when they just thought about like a person getting 12,000 bucks. You're like, no, no, no. Like, and also the communities that most need that already do this to an extent. Yeah. Like they'd be able to apply it in ways that like, you know, so effectively that people like myself who has always been comfortable, like can't even imagine, you know? Yeah, the child tax credit, I love it. It's lifting tens of millions of people and families out of poverty. But I do think it would be great if people who didn't have kids also got that money. You know what right. I mean? <laughs> right. Because <laughs> like, in, in a lot of ways, like, those people have to pragmatically spend that. 
It's like I got a mouth to feed. And it's not so much money. It's not like these people are like balling out. That yeah, 300 bucks a month per kid. Right. Uh, but I think a lot in a lot of ways your basic income proposal freedom dividend was aptly named and that like a lot of times like the freedom that would create for a lot of people who maybe didn't have to immediately spend it on feeding that mouth would create so much value and like not for nothing like happiness and purpose in people's lives and all those things that like I think are hard to see sometimes in the way our society is constructed it's hard to see like how people talk often about um how Americans aren't really in poverty right it's like we'll compare them to you know people in Liberia they're not in poverty but I think the threat Americans face if they are impoverished is so intense right it's not like to go back to the community thing right you don't have a lot of people to lean on you're kind of on your own we don't have really a social safety net at all um, so you can fall so far so and you're usually in debt like you only have like a month you know to not have that play out and you're just trying to make it ends meet all the time so much of our society is in that mind frame and I don't think we properly attribute um, that reality to some of the outcomes that we're seeing Completely. I think if you falter in America today, it's very isolating. There's a lot of shame associated with totally. it. And you don't have that lattice or web of connections that are going to protect you or uh, put you back on your feet. One of the facts that I found striking is that unemployed men volunteer less and attend religious services less than employed men, right? which you think for a second, it's like, wait a minute, you have more time, so you could right. clearly do those things. Right. <laughs> but when you lose that, that right. sense of connection and purpose, you actually withdraw and check out, totally. which we're seeing over and over again in American life. Uh, and putting resources into people's hands, I think, would, like you said, give everyone um, a reason to be able to come together and, and try and totally. pursue things collectively. Cause we're, there's like such a loss of value now in American life. If, if things go poorly uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking really when I, I think about so many people whose um, potential is, is being lost as a result. Yeah. I'll say like I spent the last 18 months basically living on the road cause we were on the 44th first floor of this, building out here in Battery Park City. There's like 10 people on the elevator right when the pandemic kicked off. And we're like, this is, this is not the scene, you know, you want to be in. And we were lucky enough to have family that could take us in. So we've been in all these different places, staying with family, you know, San Diego and Lake Tahoe and Portland with, with myself and my wife's family. And it's interesting because I feel like New York ruined my, uh, my ability to interact with people socially because so many people are dealing with that reality outside of this little bubble. So many people are dealing with reality that you're talking about where they don't want to talk about what's going on with them. You yeah. know, you come up to anyone in New York, you're like, tell me about your mission, man. What's going on? How can I help you? And it, you know, you'll fire right back at me. You're like, I'm trying to fix democracy and get everyone money. Let's do this. And you get out there and they almost feel attacked. You know, ask them, you know, hey, what's going on, man? What's your, what's your goals this year? You know, like, hey, like, let's talk about football. So it's, and yeah, you're totally right. Like people, when they're not in a healthy state, like they recede from their communities because like they don't want to answer that question. There's a real punitiveness, and I'm going to speak uh, speak to it for men in particular. Maybe just uh, yeah. I can relate to it. Also, I think societally, it's something that we're dealing with, uh, which is that as a guy, it's very, very tough to evince struggle uh, or share vulnerability, yeah. particularly if there are uh, financial strains involved. It's like as a dude, it's like, you know, yeah, yeah. You, you do not want to seem like your hard luck 
Um, and I remember this when my, you know, I mean, obviously it's very different circumstances, but um, when my first company failed, like I felt like such a failure to my core. Totally. Uh, and, you know, in my case, obviously it was, everything was going to be fine, but, you know, <laughs> like, it, but it, it doesn't feel that way. Yeah. And so then if you actually are someone who uh, who's hitting tough times and the exigencies are real, like you might not be able to make ends meet. Um, it's very especially hard to in this out. society where like we so bought in on it being a meritocracy. Totally. Like we just don't believe in systemic factors in the same way. Or even just the ebbs and flows of a life, right? Like we're all on trajectory, in this trajectory, and it should be pointing this way all the time. Um, totally, company failing is like brutal for that, for that reason. I've also had a failed campaign or two, uh-huh. <laughs> but but uh, you know it, it's. They're to be fair, in the to be that. fair, I wouldn't count your presidential campaign as a failed campaign. I consider that an advocacy campaign around basic income and ending poverty. That I'm sure you wanted to. Then result in a presidential. I, I was very, very happy <laughs> yeah. uh, with, with the outcome. Yeah. Um, I thought it was so important. I think it was one of the most important campaigns that's been run in this country in a long time for that reason. Thank you, Xander. I feel the same way. I'm super grateful to everyone who helped make it happen. You among them. And I have to say, of the people I encountered during this time, you were one of the earliest and then the <laughs> most pure about it. Like there, there was zero uh, maintenance necessary. So anytime you thought you could lend a hand and you would just make it happen without having to frankly like bug me or bug anyone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <right on. laughs> You're just like try and right make on. it happen. Yeah. Uh, which is a joy. Uh, it, it's something that um, you relish when you're the candidate where you're like, Oh, Xander's just making good shit happen. Right. And, and uh, you know, like doesn't need like copious thank yous or the rest of that. Jazz. Well, dude, That goes back to like that, that mission statement sitting on the top of my inbox. Like there's no eradicate desperation. You think I'm going to be able to do that myself? Like I'm so excited when someone, you know, comes into my orbit or I force my way into their orbit as I did with you. And, and they can start driving that forward, you know, in some ways that's so exciting to me. And so like, if I can be, I'm not going to solve all these things myself and very few times will I be the proper person to be the face of any of these solutions. Um, and so, you know, I'm just, I'm just like, anytime I meet someone like that, that's driving that hard towards something like that. Um, I'm just excited to be a participant and try to move the needle. I think like your presidential debate too, like not for nothing, like the basic income thing is important, but I also think at a point in time, were we being increasingly convinced that there was a segment of our population that was evil? You were pointing out that this is actually like the expected outcome of these circumstances between automation, globalization, all that. You're like, you know, pointing out how many people are on disability, how much people are struggling, and how much that, that population wasn't being spoken to. Like, I think you brought, dude, because it was a really difficult time for a lot of people. Like, you were really believing, you know, family members were evil, and you, it was so wild that you could believe that people could hear someone like Trump and then support him over, you know, an Elizabeth Warren or something like that is so like nice and reasonable and just wants Bernie Sanders just wants poor people to be less poor. And, and I think, um, and it was a tough space to sit in. Like I'm, I'm not someone who likes to sit in like a feeling of hate or anger ever. Oh yeah. You're one of the most positive, generous souls I know. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, which, plays into your work with refugees and you send me pictures of you in refugee camps periodically. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, it's amazing. How did you get involved in, and tell us a little bit about the work? Yeah. I mean, you know, the company failure thing is like the genesis of that. So our, our, I had a startup called complete. That was like a, uh, it was like the most positive place on the internet. I still wish it existed. It was a social network where people shared their tasks and goals. It was all future facing. 
and then people would comment and be able to help you, you know, and then you would check it off. So it like kind of was a to-do list and a wow, it's like affirmation. Network. I get it. Yeah. It's like trying well, to it was affirmation, it was information, it was collaboration. It was like my, mo my most amazing conversations are often about like what you're trying to do. Right. And I've had so much of my successes in life be because of the serendipity of just like announcing <laughs> what I hope to have happen one day and then people helping me along the way. Um, so we turned that into a social network, which was like beautiful. People quit smoking and ran marathons wow. and like did cool stuff. But so affirming. I love the sound of this. Yeah, but there was no nudes on, on the website. <laughs> and like, you know, Kendall Jenner's posting <laughs> hot pics. So we didn't we didn't take off like some of the other ones in the same way. But it, you know, we had a good run. And then that went under. I was feeling bummed. And like actually, like my first way to try to solve this was totally the opposite. You know, I went to Italy and like tried to like eat my way out of it with my wife and like, you know, drink a bunch of espressos and, and hang out out there, which was nice, but like didn't solve this kind of hole that was in me. And then uh, we went to Crete where my wife's family's from and we started looking for wedding venues. This was fall 2015 and, you know, really came into contact with the European refugee crisis. Like it was the, the story of the moment. It was omnipresent and, uh, it just started feeling silly at a certain point. And we were like looking for a wedding venue and, you know, eating this good food and everything while this stuff was happening so close. And so my wife and I just decided to go over there for like a month and, you know, see what we could do. Um, we don't have any like medical skills or anything like that. We were just like, let's just get over there and see, see what can happen. That was, that was the beginning of, you know, being on this island of Lesbos that's considered like the gateway to Europe and us starting our, our work over there. So you guys got uh, supplies and... Yeah, I mean, we brought some supplies, but like, uh, I was really just kind of implementing some of my startup bro skills. Like, I got the whole island on Slack, and there were like different channels. You for, have to organize. Yeah, them. That's yeah. I was like, well, they were, you know, it's 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 wonderful people, but a lot of times it was like, you know, hippies that like hadn't been in management at all, and you know, they're doing their best, but they had like a single WhatsApp group for like everything happening. We were taking in four thousand people a day. So I like applied some of that and create a splash page where people could come like, you know, enter the what skills they had. And so people could, you know, know where to where to place them, a scheduling you know, system. Helping organize the refugee camp. Uh, that's, yeah. That's or incredible. the volunteers, at least, you know, um, it was a wild time. Like you'd think you're like it'd be a bunch of feel good stuff. But a lot of time I'd never I'd never volunteered in a place where like we were resource scarce. And so a lot of the time what you're doing was like resource guarding. Like you weren't like giving everyone a jacket. You were protecting the five jackets that you had and trying to judge who was going to die of hypothermia. Oh, and, oh man. So you're telling so people no who are cold, you know, it wasn't, it was an intense, it was a super intense experience. Um, but you know, also formative and kind of my worldview of who we are in the world and you know, what we're up to and what, who we say we are versus, you know, what we're doing. Um, so, so intimate and human, man. I mean, most people don't spend months in refugee camps. Yeah. Um, trying, trying to help people stay warm. So the work you're doing right now is something I believe very, very strongly in. And I want to try and set the stage. A number of articles have come out recently that are saying that we're still facing a crisis in our democracy upcoming where yeah. millions of Americans still dispute who won this last election. Right. We could easily see a Republican controlled Congress circa 2022, 2024. Uh, and so there are a couple of outcomes that have people very, very concerned. I think that Donald Trump will probably be the Republican nominee. 
there's a chance he just wins straight up because right now you'd have to say it's some somewhat neck and neck. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously a lot of things change. I mean, who the heck knows? Um, but then there's this other scenario that uh, various journalists have laid out saying that uh, if it's a disputed election, a Republican-controlled Congress could just certify the results. Republican secretaries of state uh, yep. in certain states could just certify results. Secretary of states are dangerous right now, man, in this the, moment. There's at sure. least one state, I think Arizona, that said that now a majority vote of the state legislature can cert- certify the results. Right. Uh, and so we're heading towards crisis territory for democracy over the next one to three years. And as someone who has been trying to, in some ways, raise attention to institutional failures, I think this stuff is very, very real uh, and that that we should be super concerned about it. Uh, I take it you have a similar perspective? 100%. Our democracy is so... um, It's not fair to call it stable, but I think we don't fully appreciate the importance of it. It's where all the change sits on top of when people talk about, like, you know, advancing you know, climate, climate response to the climate crisis or advancing you know, criminal justice reform, et cetera. Like we need that, that foundation of a functioning democracy to do any of that work. Um, and I think some people are like kind of depressed about the situation, but it's, it's happening because we're winning. It's happening because we're organizing and winning effectively and actually in a lot of ways becoming a better democracy. And this is a reaction to them knowing this tidal wave's coming. We won Georgia, we flipped Arizona, Texas is on the brink. Like really like we're winning hearts and minds and demographics are shifting. And so this is the response. Like we gotta change, change the rules of the game. They've been changing the rules of the game. To be, to be honest, you know, 1.2 million, 1.5 million former felons couldn't vote in Florida, you know, and, until we passed Amendment 4 in 2018. They've, been, they've always changed the rules. They've always tried to disenfranchise especially black and brown voters, um, poor voters more broadly. And, uh, and yeah, I think this is the fight of, of this moment. And like the stakes can be higher in both directions. Sometimes we talk about the other directions like authoritarianism. Um, and that's fair. Like that moves people oftentimes to action that, Hey, like Hong, I'm so grateful for Hong Kong because we just saw it. We saw how quick it slips away. It feels like Hong Kong is a thousand years away from becoming a democracy again, especially in this moment where you can monitor your citizens like that. Um, so that's very real. But also, like if you look at the folks elected in the House in 2018, 2020 on the Democratic side, we are more progressive. We are more diverse across the board, racially, gender, et cetera. Um, and there's like a real there's a real foundation of organizing work and other good work happening across this country that could unlock. We've never had organizers funded, funded effectively throughout election cycles. So this is what you're working on right now with Give Us the Vote, uh, which and our, our mutual friends are working on. Yeah, Give I, Us the Ballot. I, I give Us the Ballot. Yeah. And I love it, uh, obviously. Uh, I do want to break down a couple of things um, because you and I are focused on different aspects yep. of this problem. Yeah. And so you're framing it as, hey, more and more diverse voters are getting activated. We need to register them. And if we do, then Democrats will prevail in more places where they have not prevailed heretofore. And oh, by the way, Republicans are noticing this and then they're passing various uh, ballot restriction laws and right. voter access laws that are going to make it harder. Right. And so give at, at give us the ballot. We're trying to counter that by 
investing in organizations that will sign up voters, protect ballot access, yep. uh, and do the work on the ground, yep. often in communities of color yep. uh, around uh, the country. And this is something that I love. Uh, I, I love trying to make it so that people can actually uh, vote effectively. Yeah, and yeah. and I, I think it's... Not only do you love, like you don't, I don't think it's, you've done so many things last year, so you haven't integrated this into your story, but you were fundamental, fundamental in me starting One for Democracy, in Defeat by Tweet getting off the ground, in Wimbo Seats. You know, you were essentially like the co-founder. You know, me and you were like, got that going. Um, Sophia Bush really leaned in, some of these other people leaned in, but really I think you were the driving force behind a lot of the small dollar donors that came into that. So it's not just like, oh yeah, I support and everything. Like between all those, all those initiatives that really like we helped start together in a lot of ways, like that moved more than a hundred million dollars to organizing work. You know, between all of them. So, so you're effective in that fight too. Oh, I want you, you. I want you to like feel that, that that you're not just in support. Like a lot of those things don't happen without your energy, at least to the same level. Well, you reached out to me, and I said this seems like a home run. Uh, <laughs> very, very happy to to do what I can. Um, Showed up at a dinner, made some tweets, but it's like you know, given your profile and everything, and like what that the trust you've built in a lot of ways, it, it meant a lot to all those initiatives. I, I did uh, do what I could, and uh, you know I, I appreciated the opportunity really being a part of it. Uh, and I'm a staunch supporter uh, because hey, you know more people voting like that that's a pure good. Uh, I'm right now, and I, I just wrote a book on this. Is that I'm convinced that we're we're having these structural. Hey, that's problems. my one direct to camera. <laughs> so oh, yeah, dude, he's, he's, he's holding my he just handsome wrote. book, uh, Forward Notes in the Future of Our Democracy. Pick it up. You haven't picked it up already. <laughs> Let's get that uh, plug in. So problem number one, uh, you're having this clash over uh, ballot access and whether people yeah. are able to vote and who can vote. And, you know, unfortunately, at this point in our country's history, you just look at certain communities and be like, oh, let's keep them from voting because they're going to vote for, for the other side. And it, it's not uh, it's not what you want at all. Um and then there's this other suite of problems that you also recognize. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that we're being set up in this polarized environment where right. 80% of seats are going to be safely Democratic or, or, or Republican right. in the general. They've been gerrymandered to high heaven, so they are safe on, on one side or the other. Right. And that we have to uh, reform our voting system so that more people have different points of view expressed uh and i'm championing open primaries and ranked choice voting yeah yeah um which hopefully and and this is one of the things i'm trying to convey to people that i think some people are catching on to is that if you wanted to build a robust anti-fragile system you wouldn't have this two-party system that allows if for example one of them gets overtaken by terrible leadership then there's no safeguard against that right. because the way our country is set up did not account for national parties totally. in, in the way they presently exist. And so if you were to have parties, you would certainly want more than two <laughs> because then if, <laughs> if, if, if one right. has problems, then you're like, well, you know, we have eight parties like Sweden. So, right. you know, if, if one of them goes bad, like, you know, you just uh, try and, uh, you know, let them sort it out for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> for a while. Um, so there's this suite of, of structural issues that I'm uh, now driving at that uh, I think you and I agree on that stuff. Totally. Totally. Like if you wanted to set up a country so there would be like heavy distrust in institutions, you would set it up the way 
much of our systems are, are structured, right? You, you'd have two parties, you'd have people run every two years, so you're constantly, you know, or, or some some types of elections happen every two years where you're constantly being told you're being lied to and fucked over by whoever's in there right now. Um, in these large, you know, these long campaigns, you'd have a system where you could only choose one person. And so if a bunch of people agree and you generally like them, they kind of drown out each other in the one dude who it's like all new ideas, whether that's for good or bad, you know, rises above them and like, and you're incentivized to behave like that. So whether or not they have ideas like that, they're incentivized yep. to tell you the majority, like basically you're incentivized to say the, uh, the majority of things we agree on, you know, smart people agree on all suck. <laughs> they actually all suck. And these people don't care about you. And it's actually over here with this suite of ideas, which of course can't be true. It can't be true that like reasonable, smart people think, you know, don't have, you know, don't mostly agree on what's good for our society. Um, so yes, that's a, that's a huge, huge problem in so many ways. I think, um, non, you call it non primary ranked choice voting or it's a open, open primary, primary ranked choice voting, um, could go a long way there could go a long way and at least like not incentive i want lots of new ideas trust me like you know yeah. I, I like you and bernie and like you know the the confluence of new ideas that are now appearing i don't want those people to suffer from this but i also like don't want people to be incentivized to like just demonize the mainstream right this is what you're seeing is this distrust in institutions that's happening across the board <laughs> Uh, so one of the compelling figures uh, in in my book, <laughs> it's hard to talk about my own book that way, um, the trust in media among Democrats is 69%. The trust in media among Republicans is 15%. So this is, goes back to your entire, there's the institutional layer, and then there's the complete mistrust of institutional uh, motivation. And independents are somewhere in the middle with 36% yeah. trusting media. And someone said to me something that uh, I'm going to I'm going to repeat. Uh, I guess I wonder if I can attribute it uh, to her. But she said at this point you have disintegration versus managed decline. <laughs> it's the way she she presented like the right. the the choice. And what what's interesting is that I'm um, trying to rejuvenate or resuscitate various institutions. Uh, I think that our current setup is not working very well. Uh, and the tough part now is if you have faltering institutions and then people are running around saying like, Hey, the institutions suck and the rest of it, you're like, uh, yeah, you know, we, we still need to right. like fix this or make it better. And then you go to the institutions and be like, Hey, can you get better? Right. <laughs> like, can you like do better or right. be better? And then a lot of institutions don't really have that capacity right. to somehow reform themselves and the rest of it. Uh, and so now my well, the people on the inside are the beneficiaries of the way it's currently constructed too, right? Not to like sow more seeds of distrust, but also like the motivation to change things radically. It's hard if you're already figured it out and you're there, like you, you're going to be incremental in the changes that you want to see just by. Yeah. And, and you don't blame the humans. I mean, in some cases totally. I, I really, you know, and like and admire a lot of the humans. Um, but you do wind up institutionalized in various ways. Yeah. And I think this is like a reasonable summary of the the core problem in American life right now is that you have struggling institutions that aren't able to reform or rejuvenate themselves right. meaningfully. 
Americans are getting more and more ticked off uh, and despondent where we're like, oh, you know, why is it that you can only distribute 17 percent of rental aid in eight months? Like, you know, <laughs> like yeah, that, that, that doesn't seem effective. And then there's this growing force of people that are like institutions suck we don't believe anything you say we don't trust you and then right. uh, and then folks like you and me i think are there being like look yeah like things aren't great but we're gonna try and make them better as quickly as possible like right. well, you know we're we're um it's very similar to your point about basic income they suck due to design not the people like they, they suck because they're designed in a way that that is really problematic yes um not because like there's lots of like nefarious people that want to ruin your lives out there and everything. We're, we're electing some of those types of people because of how it's designed. But for the most part, it's, it's, it's a design issue in the same way. Poverty is like a problematic design, not like Trumpism is a, is a symptom of a few things, right. That we haven't addressed, including poverty. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it leads us back to basic income, really. I mean, if you were to, to get the boot off of people's throat, totally. Um, give them a sense of possibility and abundance and humanity, really. Uh, and my, my big argument on the trail was, look, people can tell if you're investing in them and people can tell if you're bullshitting them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so like, right. like and one of the comparisons I said is like, you can tell after one day on the job whether that company gives a shit about you. Totally. <laughs> you, know totally. I mean? you know what I mean? Totally. Uh, and so if we genuinely invested in people, they would know that and feel that. Um, and I think then you'd have at least a chance of trying to rebuild that trust. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's the opposite of our welfare structure now, right? You wait in all these lines, you have to prove how poor you are. You get punished for taking a job. You know, it's the opposite. You're like, these guys don't trust me at all. They, they don't trust you at all. They don't trust me at all. And I'm just trying to navigate this, this nightmare of a situation. Um, I was just in yeah. California and it was a state legislator who actually said that he was convinced that we needed something like basic income because the programs were set up in such a punitive uh, way intentionally. Yeah. And so he looked at it and said, we should be moving to base. And it was very heartening that this was a state legislator. Um, so we are making progress. Uh, are you, so you are one of the most optimistic people I know. Um, right now I am relatively negative about the, the yeah, way yeah. a lot of things are going. Yeah. Um, how do you feel? A little bit of both. I think 2021 has been hard because I. It seems like the the public sentiment is like we elected Biden, we got a Democratic Senate, and like the adults are back in the room and things are, okay. And unless and that's fair, like that's unless you're really close to this stuff, it feels that way, right? You don't see this like underbelly of erosion or decay. There, there's know, like that, a lot of bad feeling. Yeah, you know, like like I get the sense that people are still. Uh, sad and angry out there. Yeah, 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 fair enough. I, I think I'm thinking about um, the ease in which I was able to get folks to cut checks to fix some of our systems during that election year and the uh, difficulty in, in getting folks to stay in the fight. And I used two words that I probably shouldn't use. I used erosion and decay, but it's intention. It's an attack. We're, we're essentially in a cold civil war. Like, it sounds dramatic to say that but i really think we are i think you know and you look at mo how most countries crumble it's not an external attack it's people consolidating power kind of breaking apart the power of the people and, and you know what was it john adams who said like democracies die by suicide yeah democracies die by suicide it's a great quote um if and there's there's a side i don't know if it's suicide though in that like like the, the current Republicans who are doing a lot of this don't see it as suicide. They see the pathway to power, right? And so, like, it's suicide for some of us. Um, but that's taking place right now, and it's a real fight. 
And it doesn't maybe look like a real fight because the way you win in that fight is you inspire people. And you and, yeah, and, and that's the tricky thing is that the fight's on, but uh, you know, a lot of people can't tell the difference between yeah. uh, partisan conflict and totally. the the totally. destruction of, of it's, democracy. It's hard because it is democracy in and of itself is now a partisan yes. fight. Yeah, you know, is one side that would and, like and, and to that, and injure. that is the problem in my mind. Totally, is that it, and it's a problem born in part of the fact that you have a two-party system. Totally, and then you go to and someone. Media and can't talk about it like that because they're supposed to be like balanced. Instead of balancing on the truth, they're trying to balance balance on not getting too partisan. You know, too partisan. Uh, but the truth is, we're in a cold war right now, really. And, and it took a conservative uh, to point out. Uh, the danger this uh, op-ed by Robert Kagan and, and you know it, it's funny where he sees it more clearly because I, th I think because conservatives see it more clearly <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> more clearly right right, right. Uh, but th this to me is the the fight it's the fight of our lives uh, you're one of the foremost champions and leaders in in the fight you've helped guide me uh, and channel my efforts over the last number of years uh, if someone wants to help you save our bacon yeah yeah like uh where do they go um depends who you are so if you're someone with serious resources uh i would love for them to go to one for democracy and join us it's a community of wealthy people pledging one percent of their net worth every year uh we're taking four-year pledges election cycle pledges to improving our democracy now that could look like the organizing work that i was just talking about but it could also look like this systemic reform work that you're leading as well um you know, it could, could work like, you know, combating misinformation, um, but things that can help strengthen our democracy. So if you're someone with resources, take that 1% pledge. Take it's, that 1% pledge. It's 1%. It's not that like we made it intentionally 1%. Like it feels silly saying, no, I won't do that. It makes me feel like we just have work to do in explaining what, how important our democracy is and how how brutal uh, and intense this threat is right now <laughs> when I get anyone saying no. I have taken this pledge. If you've got lots of resources, head to one for a democracy. So what if they don't have resources? If you don't have resources <laughs> like that, <laughs> I got you taken care of as well. Uh, I've partnered with Martin Luther King Jr.'s son, Martin Luther King III, who Love you him. introduced me to. Yeah, great uh, man. And his wife, Andrea. Andrea She's great King. too. Fantastic and people. world class. Totally. And we've launched this campaign called Give Us the Ballot that you were talking about earlier where we're asking people to donate a dollar a day to fund organizing work that's fighting voter suppression, protecting our democracy. Um, right now we have a three-pronged strategy of folks fighting in some of these more aggressive states like Texas, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama. Uh, we're investing in folks in West Virginia and Arizona that are helping pass a federal bill. Uh, and then there's, there's folks like Black Voters Matter, Color of Change Pack, Black Male Voter Project, and, and uh, Martin and Andrea's uh, Drum Majors for Change that are helping drive the narrative, keep people's attention you know, the really good uh, Martin and Andrea just led this awesome uh, March for Voting Rights in D.C. that, you know, brought the news cycle back to this issue. And so those are the types of groups that we're investing in. Um, and we're asking people to give a buck a day, which almost everyone can do. And that's moving 501c4 work. If people aren't familiar with that, uh, 501c3 work is tax deductible, but not explicitly political. This is political organizing money that can be incredibly hard to fundraise for. And so by default, we're one of the biggest funders in the space. C4 money is more flexible uh, and impactful in some ways because C3 money, you can only find C3s to give it to, or C4, you can be just explicit. Yeah, uh, so I, give I'm it wherever a, it's most effective. Yeah, so uh, I think that's very smart. Uh, and Xander Schultz does appear sometimes on social media as, a, as an individual, so you can yeah, follow yeah, him yeah. too. But it's one <laughs> for democracy, give us the ballot, uh, save us all, Xander Schultz. Uh, <laughs> together, together. <laughs> no, Xander is such a good dude. I mean, obviously, he, he really does bring 
incredible people to each effort. Uh, and you'll see for yourself if you check out uh, anything he does. Xander, such a pleasure, my friend. Um, it's uplifting anytime I get to talk to you and spend yeah. time with you. Love you, brother. Thanks for having me on. And, you know, looking forward to just keeping helping you with all this stuff, man. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. <laughs> you heard it, it here. <laughs> heard it here first. Thanks, Xander. All right. Thank you. Thank you.